How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Politics without the soap opera. With unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Miniman standing at the ready to fight anew for our life, liberty, and property. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back here today at Blaze Media. It is Tuesday, and as always, we are skating to where the puck is headed, not to where it has been. The question is, how and where do we find candidates to represent us on that playing field who actually get this point and are actually focused on the battle at hand and even more so where it's headed and how to neutralize it and defend against it. Rather than always looking back, oh man, as conservatives, we've historically been hit on this issue. Let's finally focus on it when it's a day late and a dollar short. And the damage from the lack of focus on that for years, because we we're focused on the previous thing, already came to fruition and now you need a bigger dose, a bigger dose of medicine. You know, you get an infection, you allow it to fester, you need a bigger dose. And it's true of everything we're dealing with. It's true of illegal immigration. It's true of the courts. That even the better guys, they're kind of focused on yesterday's thing. They're always a step behind. Right now, nothing short of national divorce is going to change anything. Now, I'm not saying you get there immediately, but everything you do has to be oriented towards making red states red and then state legislatures great, electing better governors, and then taking the plunge. And, you know, today we're going to have a special guest on later in our Meet the Candidates series, candidate running for governor in Alabama, as we await the news from Pennsylvania today, but like I'm telling you guys, I'm obviously all in for Kathy Barnett over uh, the the Turkish Sultan, but I will tell you, I I wish we had a better horse for governor, although I think Doug Mastriano is what we have, and and we got to rally to him, but instead she's running for Senate. Senate ain't going to give you anything. I hate to be harsh here, but we have zero full-spectrum conservative senators. Zero. <clears throat> it's about three to, oh, I don't know, three to five maybe. That, depending on the issue, could be with us. You have maybe up to ten that could be with us on one issue. Okay? But not much more. You know, like M- Mike Lee voted against the stupid Ukraine thing, but he's horrible on crime and, and visas and... You know, Rand Paul's good on the Ukraine thing, but on some other issues, not as good. And, you know, Ron John was a great champion on COVID, really one of the only ones and the only one to really go after the meat and potatoes of it. But for some reason, he voted for cloture on the $40 billion giveaway. I mean, and these are not just like small issues. So even on the top five issues, we can't get a single one that's good. So even if this cycle, we go from zero to two, okay, how are you going to get to 51? Whereas if you focus on governor... 
you get the entire state. So this is a new strategy we need to think about. Stop focusing on yesterday's battle. Now, because we didn't focus on one of the battles, which is crime, and we allowed conservatives and phony conservative think tanks to be pro-criminal, guess what? We have so much crime, we even have crime tourism now, where criminals come to the U.S. on tourist visas, burglarize a bunch of homes, and then bring the loot back over the border. Now more than ever, you need to learn how to defend yourself. That's why I support iTarget Pro, the revolutionary system that allows you to dry fire practice with your actual firearm at home in the safety and privacy of your home. I just went to the range. I actually took my 12-year-old son out for his birthday. And I'm just telling you, ammo is so much money. Range membership is so much money these days. It's really tough. What if I told you you could make that back, the cost of the ammo back, in one training session after purchasing your iTarget Pro? It's basically uh, a laser bullet you put into your firearm. It's made for all different ones, 223 for AR and... Uh, obviously 9mm, 45 cal, 38, whatever you have, you download iTarget's propriety app and then you shine it on a board and it renders your shots. You could even time your draw, your muscle memory, the trigger function, sight alignment, picture alignment, reaction speed. It's all there. The only thing you can't do is take two shots because you have to reset the action after one. Um, it is really a good way, especially those of you who are coming out Sunday to our trip uh, in New Mexico with Patriot Academy. You're going to want to practice that five-point draw, the muscle memory. This is the best way to do it in a cost-effective way. So go to itargetpro.com right now and save 10% plus get free shipping with offer code CR as in conservative review. It's the smartest way for you to practice, and it pays for itself. That's the letter I, TargetPro.com, offer code CR. Okay, so yesterday we had unbelievable news, but it's not even in the news. The April border numbers came out, and it turns out there were 234,000 apprehensions, the most in history. Every month we're breaking the record. Um, about half of them were released, about half of them were turned back. So 118,000 more just in one month were released into the U.S. And as you well know, when you have 234,000 uh, apprehensions, you're likely getting at least a third ratio of gotaways. You know, so you'd say maybe 80,000 or so gotaways. Since Biden has taken office... We have had 2.9 million apprehensions at the border. 2.9 million. Okay? That is greater than the size of the city of Chicago. And, and, and we're only talking about less than a year and a half. I mean, I'm counting from February 2020 through April. So that is, what, you know, 15 months worth of data? 15 months. 2.9 million. Now, you'll say some of them were turned back, but then what I'll tell you is it's probably made up at least by the gotaways that aren't counted there, and those are the worst, which is likely 800,000 to a million. You, you can't recover from that. And the point is, what I mean in today's thesis of, of skating to where the puck is headed, Anything else aside from states promising to get together and start deporting illegals and just broadly enforcing, you know, 
uh, no K through 12 education, no Bennies, no nothing. Make it that they cannot live here. Nothing short of that will turn it off. Like a lot of Republicans are finally on to Title 42. Oh, we need to turn back to the border. But dude, the 235K is with Title 42. It's slated to, Biden slated to get rid of it next week. But that's with that in place. Now, I know you could say he only applies it to certain populations and theoretically you could expand it, but I don't even think Republicans are fighting for that. They're just fighting to keep the status quo. It's a classic Republican thing. Oh my gosh, if this is allowed to happen, we might lose our country. Dude, we already lost our country because of 30 years of GOP malfeasance where they not only didn't fight it, but they actually joined with it. And frankly, they're still on the same payroll of big ag and big business they just have to you know fake fight it for their base at this point meaning it might look like i'm moving the goalposts because in the past i wouldn't have called for this but now if you're gonna not do that stuff for 20 years and now you have 235,000 apprehensions a month and it goes up every month and it's slated to possibly you know double there's nothing left Oh, Daniel, I don't know if we can do that lawfully. Which leads me to the next point I wanted to make today. And that's the courts. Anything good that is done in the red states will be screwed with by the federal courts. The same federal courts that weren't there for us when we had legitimate rights under assault will be there to create BS rights for American Americans and phantom rights for, uh, you know, trespassers and invaders, they're going to screw with us. Okay? So, what's the reaction of the Republican and conservative establishment? And even the good guys. Oh my God, the violence, the threats of violence against the Supreme Court. We can't allow them to corrupt the Supreme Court. We can't allow them to threaten to pack the, the court. Um... We need to protect our institution as if we have this budding conservative court that we need to protect from an onslaught. No, they already got it, despite the Dobbs or impending Dobbs opinion on abortion. If the Democrats are pissed off at the courts, now's the time to look them in the eye and say, all right, let's keep all political issues out of the courts. Let's shake on it. You're going to delegitimize the courts? We're going to join with you in delegitimizing the courts. And again, when I say delegitimize the courts for 99% of cases that come to the courts are legitimate individual criminal or civil cases. They're not broad political issues, but the broad political issues, they're going to stay with the state legislatures. You'd be stupid not to take the deal and stupid not to push for it and stupid not to broadly join the jujitsu, the Democrat momentum against the legitimacy of the courts rather than trying to legitimize a system that's the most harmful. Then again, they don't see the play down the field because they don't believe in what we believe in, right? They don't see the issue. They don't understand that the only reason you don't see courts striking down, so to speak, every last thing red states do is because they don't do much. But the few things they do and are doing You know, transgenderism, I would say, is one of the few things that we kind of did make progress with in certain legislative bodies. Guess what? The courts are screwing with each and every one. I mentioned this yesterday, and we'll probably talk about it with the candidate today, because we're having the Alabama gubernatorial candidate. A Trump-appointed judge blocked part of 
Alabama's law that just passed, which banned chemical castration for minors. This is U.S. District Judge Lyles Burke, a Trump appointee, found a substantial likelihood that the law is unconstitutional. Parents have a fundamental right to direct the medical care of their children. This right includes the more specific right to treat their children with transitioning medications subject to medically accepted standards. So there's no fundamental right while you're dying to get ivermectin. There's no fundamental right. The same courts are, the same federal judges, by the way, are applying Jacobson. Remember, this might sound like he's, he's using my language of bodily autonomy, but watch the, the sleight of hand there. A fundamental right is when the government is forcing a procedure on you and you want you want the status quo. A fundamental right is freedom from, not a right to. You don't have the right to access any particular procedure, most certainly one that literally chemically castrates you. It's not like you're trying to save a heart, you're trying to save a lung, an ailment. You want to transition your hormones, you don't have a fundamental right to that. Even if, I'm saying even if you agree with doing that or don't have a problem with it, there's no fundamental right. A state doesn't a state could ban access to that. Especially when there's so many harms from it. I mean, there's no data on people living very long and, and most of them wind up committing a suicide. So this is this is a Trump judge. This is the, there's only three states that banned it so far, Arkansas, Tennessee, and Alabama. And Alabama's the only one that put criminal penalties on. And here we go. Trump judge, Trump-appointed judge, said there's a fundamental right, but we couldn't get such a ruling on ivermectin. Not that I think that you do have a fundamental right. I just think in statute we should make that available. Because I don't think you have a fundamental right to a positive procedure but we're saying we could destroy your job, drum you out of the military, if you don't get a clot shot that sterilizes a lot of people. But you have a right to castration. Folks, I got nothing for you. Now, a lot of the reason why very few states are passing this is because they're beholden to woke corporations that limit your free speech and push all this garbage. That's why I want you guys to support America's only Christian conservative wireless provider, cell phone provider, and that is Patriot Mobile. Unlike other big major services, here you get to have your cake and eat it too. You can get the great service plus the peace of mind that your money is combating the left's attempt to silence you. They have a plan to fit any budget. They have a terrific 100% U.S.-based customer support team, and they all speak English. Moreover, they share your values, and they actually, rather than giving to uh, castration organizations, they give to those fighting for religious freedom, constitutional rights, sanctity of life, and they support our veterans. Go to patriotmobile.com slash CR or call 972-PATRIOT, and you will get an English speaker on the phone. Get free activation with the offer code CR. Veterans and first responders out there, you will save even more if you switch today. So go to patriotmobile.com slash CR. That's patriotmobile.com slash CR or call 972-PATRIOT because it's time we support companies that love you, love America, and share your values. So folks, I'm not done yet. So we have this Alabama judge. Then we have... We have a federal judge in Indiana. This is an Obama appointee. 
that is forcing the Martinsville School District to allow a female student who thinks she's a male in a male bathroom. Now, it's not as dangerous as the other way around, but still, what the heck. So you don't have a right to your own body. So think, think about it. A kid in school doesn't have the right to breathe. Okay? No federal judge, even the one in Florida that was just like a statutory, nobody said you have a constitutional right to breathe out of your mouth. You have to take, allow the state to take a physical action and put a medical device on your breathing holes. That is not a fundamental right. But you have a fundamental right to ask to use the other gender's bathroom and be, be you know, g- given access to it. I got nothing for you folks. These are the courts of Sodom and Gomorrah. Any minimal thing we seek to do gets enjoined in the courts. For the few times we get to enjoin their stuff in the courts, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Think about it. You live in, a, in New York, in Maine. If you don't get a shot, you're, you're out of luck working in a, any hospital, anywhere. The courts are like, there's no, no right to bodily autonomy. Oh, but you, you have right to access someone else's bathroom. Okay? Um, this, this is truly unbelievable. Truly unbelievable. And here we go. And by the way, you might say, well, Daniel, that's only a district judge. Okay, okay. Sometimes you might have to be patient. You'll have a bad district court ruling, but we'll be able to appeal it and win it. Do you know where they're coming from? Do you know where they're coming from? two different things that Gorsuch screwed us on. Well, one, Well, you know, I think it is both. Definitely the Bostock opinion, where he applied uh, transgenderism, read it into Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Now, it's not directly related, but but uh, the education amendments, which is where this is coming from, are, you know, Title, um, title uh, IX, this is pretty similar as Alito, as Alito noted in his dissent in Bostock, they're going to use it, and they have, other courts have used it. I haven't read the opinion if he applied Bostock. I, I don't have it in front of me. Maybe he did. And number two is we did have the Grimm v. Gloucester County in Virginia where the Fourth Circuit ruled exactly like this and said you have the right to the opposite gender's bathroom, and I believe it was only Alito and Thomas who would have granted the appeal from the school district. So if you think we have five votes on this issue, we do not. So here's red state America. You won't even be able to keep men out of girls' bathrooms in a red state. But Republicans are like, oh my gosh, we have this conservative court. We have to uh, you know, protect from the liberal onslaught. Give me a freaking break. And again, shoot me, but I care about this issue more than abortion. Because this is affecting our kids. This is forced upon us, just like the clot shots. The other thing is elective. I don't want to make it seem like I'm happy with abortion. I'm not. I want to oppose it. And again, if I were in a state legislature, um, I would immediately convene a special session and just categorically ban it right now, which none of them are doing, rather than just whining about the courts and, and the security of the judges, which I'm sure they are getting proper security by now. There's only a few of them. Right? <clears throat> But this is where the focus is. 
It's always on yesterday's issue. Oh, we have to get the judges, the left's assaulting the court. Dude, they're assaulting the thing that's assaulting us. <laughs> so let's just say, hey, get rid of judicial supremacism. Here we go. Done. Over with. But they haven't learned their lesson, even in Arizona, where they passed some good things. The Republican-controlled Arizona Senate voted yesterday, 16 yay votes, so I think a number of Republicans supported, basically to open an ethics investigation into Senator Wendy Rogers for inflammatory comments about the Buffalo Massacre. They already censured her two months ago. Um, I'm sick of this. The Republicans have not changed. And speaking of Republicans not changing, Ukraine. Again, if you don't have a candidate running and saying blatantly, I will oppose, um, you know, Mitch McConnell. I will oppose this entire Ukraine business. I will oppose pharma, not just the mandates. They are worthless. Okay? So that is what's important about Kathy Barnett. At least she's running on her issues like that. We'll see what happens tomorrow. But again, why don't we have any governors like this? <clears throat> you know, perhaps Carrie Lake, we had her on in Arizona, and perhaps our next guest from Alabama. But today we have Janice McGeehan running in Idaho. We'll see what happens. We'll pray for a miracle. But there is no movement focus on her. Very, very little. Trump refused to campaign the way he did for Oz. He put it all on the table. No one even knows he endorsed Janice. And here's where we are. They're focused on the wrong issues, the wrong candidates, the wrong offices, the wrong strategies. I mean, th this is the problem. No one understands the art of politics in this business. Honestly, conservative media people are the dumbest people alive. I'm sorry. But anyway... Ukraine, we only had 11 vote, no votes on cloture. 11 no votes on cloture. Probably going to pass it tomorrow because Rand could only hold it up until Thursday. And, you know, even, even Ted, Ted Cruz, he voted for cloture. By the way, the Ukrainian soldiers, the Azo Brigade, laid down their arms at Maripol, the Battle of Maripol. So, so that big city, Russia, Russia now has it. So again, what exactly are you supporting? On the one hand, we find Russia's a paper tiger in the sense that there's no way they could permanently hold the entire Ukraine. They don't want to because they're forever going to have the backlash and the guerrilla warfare we had in Afghanistan. They certainly don't have the power to march through Europe. Not that, they, that, not that Putin was going to do that anyway, but that initial shock. Oh my gosh, this is like Poland and, and, and Hitler. Dude, no one believes that anymore. But on the other hand, they are always going to be strong enough to hold on to their prerogatives in eastern Ukraine. And, and they're, they're not going to let go. They've sunk too much into this. Like I said, short of a kinetic war with them, an allied invasion, they will not be dislodged. All you are doing is funding the corrupt oligarchs, uh, strengthening the hand of, of the neo-Nazis for when the conflict does end, running up the casualty score, perpetuating the supply chain shortages and the misery ac across the globe. You are achieving nothing.
you are achieving nothing. And again, at what point do you have to declare war? They're using the language of war. They're funding $40 billion. Okay, if our founders thought you were pumping $40 billion against so that is a declaration of war. Where is the declaration of war? They're a bunch of cowards. If they really believe it, have a bill to declare war. But they have this little, you know, end run around us. And then you have little Marco here. Marco Rubio. He writes in uh, Real Clear Politics, What's next in Ukraine? Americans deserve a plan. So he has the nerve to spend months, you know, juicing up Ukraine more than Biden. Like, this is our fight. I mean, you should have seen all the stuff he said. And he's like, last night, the Senate advanced the $40 billion military, economic, humanitarian aid, yada, yada. And then he says, nevertheless, President Biden should not assume Congress will rubber stamp his next request. What do you mean rubber stamp? You are begging for it. You are saying he wasn't doing enough. So now they're starting to feel the heat from the conservative base. This is what they do. It's always looking backwards. A, a day late, a dollar short. They caused the problem. They joined in with it when it mattered. When we could have stopped it in, in its infant state, they actually were stepping on the gas pedal more than Biden. And now they're like, well, you know, it can't, can't be um, a blank check. Can't be a blank check. We owe the American people to clearly articulate our goals. For most Americans, rising prices, surging crime, and wave after wave of legal immigration are today's most pressing issues. Gee, Marco, that is not to minimize the importance of foreign affairs, right? So then why are you doing it, Marco? And what are you calling for on the other issues that is as specific as a, and as emphatic as your support for Ukraine? This is, all, this is what they do. They countenance our, re our rhetoric. They indulge it, and then they... Jiu-jitsu it. They're perfect in what they do. The left spends their time. Democrat Party spends its time empowering its base. The Republican Party spends every waking hour seeing how to fool and make an end run around their base. So they'll broadly indulge our rhetoric while doing the opposite. It's an unbelievable piece from Marco Rubio. Check it out at Real Clear Politics. Read the whole thing. It is, I've, I've never seen anything like it. Literally, while he's arsoning us, he complains about the arson. So it's nonstop. Nonstop. Just some quick COVID news before we go on. Um, Dr. Jes Jessica Rose and Peter McCullough they have a paper out um, on myocarditis. They basically went through all the myocarditis entries in theirs. There's about 40, 41,000 entries so far for myocarditis. And here's what they found. Rates of hospitalization were 84% among those 0 to 19, meaning among those under 19 who reported myocarditis in theirs, 84% of them were hospitalized. 71% were hospitalized among the overall, the general public of all age. Um, and 79% of all myocarditis requiring hospitalization reports were made within seven days of injection. Half of them were made within 48 hours, and 90% of all those requiring hospitalization were filed within, were filed within seven days. 
for for um, children zero to nineteen. Meaning everything was more sensitive for younger children. They're more likely to go to the hospital, more likely to quickly report it. So ninety percent of those under nineteen were reported within seven days. Do you, do you know what that means? Okay, what this means is that you might think, oh, you know, the myocarditis number is about 41,000. That's very liberal. You know, it's encompassing a lot of things. No, overwhelmingly, they were the ones that went to the hospital. And, and overwhelmingly, they half were within 48 hours, majority and supermajority among kids within seven days of the shot. That means that almost anything later on, all these sudden things, as we predicted, are not traced back to it, even though we know it's causing it. So it's not just the subclinical myocarditis, but anything that didn't go clinical within the first week. And, and even a lot of those, I'm sure, are missed in theirs. But the point is, you bet your bottom dollar that you go a couple weeks out, and certainly a couple months out, that is never being reported. So again, the myocarditis and the broad heart inflammation, the heart-like ailments that we're seeing that's captured in theirs, as appalling as those numbers are, they are clearly the tip of the iceberg. And Robert Malone, I, I was the first to predict this. Robert Malone went out on a limb yesterday and he told Adele Bigtree of the High Wire that he believes the majority, meaning that means more than 50%, of all people who got the shot have some degree of subclinical myocarditis. Does that mean 100% of those people will ever suffer? Probably not. Does it mean a good number of them will one day? Probably yes. That is insane. You, you literally broke the hearts of an entire globe. And, uh, you know, name me the number of Republicans speaking to this. Speaking, uh, uh, treating Pfizer and Moderna like Planned Parenthood. No. Again, this is why I don't want to hear about yesterday's issue. I don't want to hear the Republican who's like, oh, I'm against Planned Parenthood, and he's in bed with Pfizer. Drop dead. You're, no, you're of no use to me. Um, one other point I wanted to share with you, I mean, but this you already know, there's a UK report that one in five children are not meeting expected standards by the age of two and a half with thousands likely needing speech and language therapy. They're unable to speak properly or play properly. Again, I mean, it's not even a matter of a Nuremberg trial. We haven't even put into place legal and policy safeguards to prevent this from happening in the future in almost every state. Meaning a handful of states here and there, we pass one or two good bills. There's almost not a single one where we passed all of them. New Hampshire probably came the closest. They passed about a dozen medical freedom bills. Let's see if the governor signs them. Who knows? He's probably not very happy about it. But kudos to the work of those in uh, particu particularly the New Hampshire House. But uh, this is where we are. And by the way, one other thing before I forget. I know I'm hopping around from issue to issue. Um... Biden announced yesterday, basically, the New York Times leaked a memo that he gave a green light to support any kinetic action in Somalia. So Somalia, so, so Ukraine is not enough. We have to go into Somalia. So now we're going to put Somalia together. We're going to defend and hold which land from whom? 
Uh, which <laughs> are, are we going to talk about the sovereign nation state of Somalia now? And name me the Republicans asking questions about this. No, as long as it's uh, supporting uh, uh, the big defense contractors, it's all good. It's all good. Somalia, anyone gets our attention except for Americans. But with that, I want to turn to the governor's race. So while everyone is focused on Pennsylvania and we await the results from today, um, obviously for my part, I'm more focused on Idaho, but there's nothing we can do. The die is cast. I look ahead towards the following week. Every Tuesday now, we're going to have big primaries. And like I said, the governor races matter more than the senatorial races, and for obvious reasons. So we've had on someone challenging Governor Kristi Noem in South Dakota. Obviously, we've had Janice from Idaho. Um, In the open seat in Arizona, we had Carrie Lake on. Our next state to focus on is Alabama. The primary is coming up very soon. And here's why it's important. We have a governor there, Kay Ivey, who is may as well be my governor, Larry Hogan, here in Maryland. Um, certainly not a leader on a single issue, full-born COVID fascism. Uh, Alabama is really one of the worst GOP trifectas you could imagine. Uh, but the question is, is that going to change? Rarely do we have an incumbent governor who loses in her own primary. That rarely happens. In fact, I can't remember the last time that has occurred. But there are some polls out now that show her in trouble that at a minimum she will be drawn into a runoff. And when you're drawn into a runoff after being governor for six years, you know, 100% name ID, that usually is not good for the incumbent. The number two candidate polling, there are several candidates running there. A candidate who is roughly in second place in the poll, who has probably the best chance of drawing her into a runoff, is Tim James. He ran for governor uh, many years ago, lost by a hairline. Uh, He's a businessman. Uh, Incidentally, his father was governor many decades ago, first as a Democrat, then as a Republican, back really when Democrats in Alabama were more conservative than the Republicans are today. So we'll discuss that and more with our candidate. Uh, Mr. James, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your vision with our audience. Uh, Daniel, good to be on the show. Greetings from the great state of Alabama, the last one of the few bastions, for the most part, of uh, freedom and capitalism. And we're having to fight uh, the, the battles to keep it out of here. And it's getting tougher day by day. Sure. So I'm going to tweak something you just said. You have to fight to keep it out of there. So I would argue one of the um, issues that has concerned me, and Alabama is not the only state, but it certainly is one of the prominent red states where, put it this way, I'm from Maryland, and you'd think, hey, I'd want to move to a state like Alabama. Well, you have freer gun laws, that's for sure. But when it comes to COVID, my life, I don't feel, would have materially have been that different in Alabama. You had kids being masked in some of the big cities like Birmingham until fairly recently, and really even in the other parts of the state for way too long. How did that occur? How did something so illegal, illogical, immoral, and inhumane occur in the state of Alabama? And as governor, what would you do to prevent that from ever happening again? I would have stopped it dead in its track long, long ago. Governor is the firewall, as, as we talked before, and governors of states have executive, uh, special executive powers. 
the role of governor, first and foremost, is protect its people, protect its children. And we've known for a long, long time that these mandates were, were way out of proportion, uh, really since the fall of 2020. And this governor basically said he started blaming the unvaccinated on, on, on the problems. And, of course, as we know now, that's not true. And you had some local school boards that were forcing masking on children, first, second, third graders. And the governor did nothing. Had I been governor, I would have shut it down on a dime. And uh, and, and the, the damage that has been done to our children is unprecedented. They're two years behind in their in their studies because they've worn these masks. And, you know, you learn to read. You learn little ones learn to speak because they read lips and hear the sound. That's what phonics is. So with, we have children that have never been to school without a mug on. And then secondly, the emotional toll on our children uh, you know, they know in their spirit, Daniel, they look at each other in a class. They know something is wrong. You're laying a spirit of fear on them. And we know this now that little ones are constantly reaching up at their parents, their mom or so, trying to pull the mask off. And they're not playing. They're trying to see their face because it gives them assurance. And this is this has been going on until as recently as a month ago way too long and the price that we we are going to pay is immeasurable and it did not have to happen and it happened because KIV our governor didn't know any better or just didn't didn't understand it or actually bought into the insanity that has been laid on the American people from Fauci and the rest of them I don't and I don't know which one it is to be honest so obviously the governor claims to oppose uh, the shot mandates, but as you mentioned, is a very strong supporter of the shots, ridiculed those for not getting it, has never recanted that in light of the copious data that has come out to show that they are extremely dangerous, not only ineffective, but negatively effective now. Negative efficacy causes immune suppression. As we are recording today... Uh, the CDC or the FDA just approved a third dose for five to 11 year olds. Your governor right now in the state of Alabama, what would your department of health do? We would tell the truth. And that's been the problem all along. You know, Daniel, it's not that the state health officer was wrong. Anybody can be wrong. Okay. The problem is he refused other voices officially to be heard, and he effectively is, is somewhat of an extension of the governor. They would not let, they would not allow other doctors, I mean some of the renowned doctors from around the nation, to come in and put them all in one room and have an honest discussion on this stuff because they didn't want the voices to be heard, and that's criminal, and we've lost lives because of it. And that you know the the first suppression was don't take ivermectin, don't take hydrochloroquine, ivermectin's horse medicine. All these things were lies from the beginning, and we now know that they work. And so it's more the same. It's more the same. And what this stuff is, this is nothing but a controlling mechanism. This is what this is really a, the root of this is Marxism. It's controlling a population under the yoke of fear and intimidation, and it's gone on and on and on. 
and you have a really bad guy now in the White House. It's very dangerous for the nation. And so governors have got to stop and say, we're not going to do this anymore. And sometimes there's a price to pay. Daniel, that's the issue, is that the cowardice in the nation and the cowardice among governors, even if they kind of agree with it, they don't have the courage because they're not willing to pay the price, and the price could be heavy at times. You know, freedom freedom is not cheap. And everybody thinks that these wars have been, we talk about the greatest generation and all these things, but it, it doesn't last. It, and you have to fight for it, and you have to treat it like gold, or it becomes sand and it slips through your fingers. And that's where we are. And we're at a, we're at a tipping point. We're at a, a inflection point in, a, in history that either we're going to turn this nation back and leaders are going to begin to stand up and pay the price, do what you have to do, stand alone if need be, and say, no, we're not going to do it, or this country's gone. And we're at that point right now. And we probably haven't been at an, at an inflection point like this since the revolution and and you know it was just one of those times and all of a sudden these guys stand up and they found this document called the declaration of independence and they knew full well it was a death sentence if we didn't win the war and we're sort of at that point now we've gone full circle in american history that's my opinion how do you detach the Alabama legislature from big pharma and the medical cartel and again this is true of all red states um you know, you wouldn't catch most Republicans dead uh, palling around with Planned Parenthood. Uh, but on the other hand, Pfizer, I mean, a lot of them get money from Pfizer. First of all, would you pledge not to take money from Pfizer? And how would you detach um, the sovereignty of the state from the big medical cartel, which really seems to be driving these policies? It absolutely is. Well, first of all, I wouldn't take any money from pharma or any of the rest of them, hospitals or any of them. But, and it doesn't mean that some of the hospital people are not, you know, a lot of these people are just, they just kind of just going about their business and they don't have a clue. And what's happened is the state's health officer is not a cabinet-level position. It needs to be a cabinet-level position, and they need to serve at the pleasure of the governor, so it's really the governor speaking. And basically the hospitals have been the ones that have – they're the ones who effectively pick the state health officer. So we got a number one. we got to fix that. And really, it's really not that hard, Daniel. It's a function of a governor standing up, showing up in these meetings, and saying we're not going to do it. And you'd be shocked. You talk about the legislature. The way the Alabama legislature is structured right now, you have about a third of them who think like I do, which is very conservative, right down the line. They vote right. That is what we would think of as a conventional Alabama Republican. Then you have about a third of them who, how, what in the world they're doing on the Republican ticket is beyond me because they really culturally – are not Republicans. They believe in gambling. They believe in taxes. They believe in all these things. And then you have this wad, this third in the middle. And these, these are the ones that they're not bad people. They just, they're weak. And they follow, you know, they'll follow good leadership and they'll follow bad leadership. So if you elect a strong governor and, and you have strong leadership, they'll fall in line. That's just, that's just the way it is. Now, we're going to have a huge shift turnover in the legislature this year and we're going to begin to see how it plays out next week 
and that could be a great uh, a great thing at, at a perfect time if I, as I'm uh, elected governor of this state to bring in a bunch of new folks, new blood, new ideas, and they hadn't been polluted by being in office for, for a decade or two. And so we're at a good time, and we can fix this stuff in short order. It's just having the will to do it. What happens when your governor and the federal government comes down with a policy or perpetuates a policy that is patently unconstitutional Unconstitutional and very deleterious to the people? For example, um, there's nothing more constitutional than the federal government being charged with uh, securing the border, securing our, our sovereignty. It was just announced 234,000 incursions just in the month of April alone. Uh, so that's flooding all the states. Uh, you are you are governor today, let's say. And again, we have, you know, the Biden administration nullified the Immigration Nationality Act. They nullified our border. So they're flooding the 50 states. What actions would you take as governor to deal with the legal immigration issue? Well, you know, I, I listen to all the, the chatter about this, and at times it gets a little bit off base, and here's why. It is the federal government responsibility to protect the borders, and you have a president. This is what he has done is, is an impeachable offense. There is no doubt. The problem is these people are coming through the border. It looks like Swiss cheese. They're entering the nation. They're going in every direction around the country, okay, in big, big numbers. And they're in the in the drain, the crime, the drain, the cost, health care, all these things are just draining uh, the states. Now, we're not going to put a border between Mississippi and Alabama or Tennessee and Alabama or Georgia and Alabama. So these people are coming into the states. We have to stop them at the border, and this is where this is heading. If if this doesn't end, I mean, it is the governors who who, who are going to have to address it at the borders. Now, Texas is doing, Arizona and New Mexico. As governor, I will send our troops, I will send our treasure, our money to these states, to these governors that are on the front lines. You've got to create a backstop in the border states. You cannot let millions and millions and millions of people come in, come in through Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, and scatter all throughout the 50 states. It's like it's like trying to herd cats. And if, if there is to be a secondary backstop border along the border states, that's where the focus has to be. That's where you have to draw the line in the stand, and it will take, it will take multiple states to engage if, if, the, if the hosting states request it. That's how you do it. Now, um, you know, a lot of guys talk big and they talk about, well, we're going to pick them up and we're going to fly them off the, over the border and all this big talk. That's nothing but talk. Um, the right way to do it is to deal with it at the border, which is the federal responsibility, that, but they're not doing it. And the states may have to do it themselves. As I've said many times, it is the state. It is the governors who are the firewall. And they're having to step into the role of a president because he his, he refuses uh, to to do you know to uphold his constitutional responsibility. So I, I understand you're saying this is a little bit naughty just because of the logistics of it. 
Um, I do think states could cut off benefits, and, and not a single one of the 50 states has fully done that yet, so that might be something to look at. But in general, if it's an issue that doesn't have this cross-state logistical issue and a federal government does something unconstitutional, do you believe that it is the role of the governor to interpose against that? Of course, the Constitution is very clear. And it, this is, people get, get this confused. The Constitution gives certain, gave very clearly certain powers to the federal government. Uh, the 30,000-foot view is they gave the power over interstate commerce and defense of the nation. See, the Constitution was ratified in the very first place as a defense mechanism in the nations. It laid out every, what was re- reserved to the states. It gave a very clear restriction on federal power in the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights is nothing but a restriction on federal power. That's all it is. And it's been usurped ever since. And they've used the 14th and the 14th Amendment, which is the due process, to, as their wild card to stick their hand, nose into everything under the sun. But it is the responsibility of not just governors, but Congress. To, to stay in their lane, in their constitutional lane, and it is the responsibility of the other branches, either either uh, laterally at the federal level or or down or vertically into the states, to obey or not to obey absolutely uh, foul unconstitutional orders. Imagine if imagine tomorrow if the federal government, if either the court system. Or Congress woke up one day and they said, now we're going to shut down. Everybody's got to turn their shotguns in or their rifle, hunting rifles in. I mean, you'd have a revolution in the country. Well, that would be an unconstitutional order. And, of course, no no governor in the country would probably, even in the crazy states, would obey it. Well, we've been watching this now for half a century in the social arena, in the prayer cases in the 60s, in the abortion case in Roe in the 70s. And then Obergefell, which is the gay marriage case uh, in, in 2016, all of which are state questions. And, you know, the states acquiesced. You know, they just caved like, uh, you know, folded like a cheap suit. And that's what happened. So much of the usurpation in the last uh, 50 years has been the federal courts taking for themselves activism. You know, they're super, they're super legislators, and we've got to stop that. And then we now, because of Biden, have seen this in the executive branch, and it's something new because of this mandate and everything they're doing and refusing to, to do their duty at the border. And so states have got to pick up the slack, and you just not – we cannot continue to ignore the, the text, the construction and the, and the text of what the Constitution says and what it absolutely means. So let's say a federal judge comes in and says, you know, the Constitution means means uh, flying pink unicorns. For example, we just spoke about this a couple of minutes ago, and obviously you're well aware of the fact that on Friday, a federal judge appointed by Trump, by the way, in Alabama, uh, said that parts of Alabama's new law blocking uh, the ability of hospitals, doctors to perform chemical castration for minors they believe you have a constitutional right to, you don't have a right to your body and you could be thrown out of the military for not getting the shot. Um, You you know, you could be denied life-saving care 
uh, you know, on a ventilator, but you do have a right to castration. That's that's what the judge seemed to be saying. He he actually said it was a fundamental right. Um, and connected to that, we talked about an Indiana case where they said there's a right for someone to use the opposite gender's bathroom in a local public school. I will tell you those issues, you know, as much as people think the Supreme Court's conservative and probably a pretty good opinion is going to come out on Dobbs, but on that issue, I can almost guarantee you where Gorsuch is because of Bostock and several other cases where the Supreme Court allowed bad circuit court opinions to stand, uh, we don't have five votes. In other words, we have a majority on the federal courts that believe there is a right to transgenderism. So you're governor now, and this comes down... And they say, for example, let me just give an example. This guy, you have to allow him in the girls' bathroom at this mobile or, you know, Montgomery, Birmingham school district. Uh, what are you going to do? Will not obey it. Period. I mean, what this judge did in, in Huntsville yesterday, the day before, uh, basically took a state statute that was passed into codified law by the legislature about six weeks ago and basically ripped it apart. It has, it, there is no federal jurisdiction here. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And, and at some point, you have to say, we're not going to do this. And it'll wind up in the courts, and, it'll find, and you'll have this Dunnybrook throughout the process. But you're not going to acquiesce to this. And this particular guy that's in Huntsville, I don't know the guy. He's a federal judge. I understand he was a, uh, a Trump appointee. But I'm fixing to, I'm fixing to expose this cat uh, with everything I got. And end of the end, you know, he he's one of the evidently one of these guys that sort of he, he, he playing both sides. And I'm going after him with both barrels starting today to expose him. And he, you know, we're going to make life uncomfortable for this guy in the state of Alabama, in the Tennessee Valley. He shouldn't have done it. He should have said, this is a state question. Leave it in state court. Let the Alabama Supreme Court uh, resolve it one way or the other. But he didn't. He's an activist judge, and he shouldn't be there. And it's, it's a terrible disappointment that he was uh, appointed uh, you know, to the federal court uh, by a Republican. Uh, another area of, of those, grave... One of those things that slipped through. Yep, another area of grave consequence... Uh, that that opens up a potential state versus federal fight is energy resources and environmental regulations. Obviously, we have energy prices the worst than they've worse than they've ever been. Uh, we have a ton of God given resources in many states, particularly out west. But Alabama does have some, and you do have offshore. You have the Gulf. Um, is there any area that you think or an angle where the governor could come in and ramp up? Uh, potential energy production within the state of Alabama, despite the feds? Well, sure. I mean, there's tremendous oil and gas reserves in South Alabama and Mobile Bay and all here. So sure, a governor can do that. I mean, you get into, when you get into interstate commerce, you do get into the federal side. And, you know, you have to be mindful of that. There are certain things that are reserved to the federal government, interstate commerce and defense of the nation. And nothing else, for the most part. Uh, the problem is the federal government, either the and primarily the court system in large part, but both have have you know they basically stepped on the the on the duties and the responsibilities and the constitutional rights of the states. So I, I think you have to take them 
one by one, but you got to be careful. I mean, this idea that that the federal government does not have a responsibility, they did. I mean, Madison said it uh, clearly in, in what, in Federalist paper, he explained it, I forget, 44, 45. So, you know, he said clearly, if you ever, you know, I'm a big Madison guy, he said if it were not, it would be a dead letter. Sure. So but, but, there but, are but things... You're a big it, Madison guy, but what do you do when you're coming 100 years into the federal government not being a big Madison guy, and you have the downstream devastating consequences of them not of them violating the law, and then you're stuck holding the bag. So, for example, with energy, yeah, legitimately there are federal lands, and that's a whole other question: what should be done with that? But there are are also state lands with federal regulations, but then you you do have a good number of these regs where the EPA and the Department of Interior have expanded them, sometimes with the help of the courts, sometimes not, uh, way beyond the scope of, of, of statute. And we have a shutdown of our energy production as a result of that. At what point do you um, fight fire with fire? Like Again, the same thing with illegal immigration. Let's go back to that. I would actually agree that on paper, states, especially if they're not right at the border, don't have the power to remove illegals. But what do you do when the federal government violates the law and the Constitution for years to the point where the Constitution would then be a suicide pact and it's only used against us to preserve the downstream effects of their unconstitutional policies? What do you do at that point? At what point is that social compact breached? Well, that compact is, is there's two things, and be careful how, when you use the word compact. Uh, some of my dear friends use the word the Constitution as a compact. It is not a compact. It's a, it was by its own terms, it's the supreme law of the land that has been abused and usurped. So, yeah, I'm certain there are situations, in, in, for example, in the oil industry, and I, I don't know what they are off the top of my head because I haven't thought about it today. Or, but sure. where governors would say that you have grossly overreached here, uh, even in, even in the areas of interstate commerce, and and you and you say no, governor. It's going to take governors, groups of governors standing side by side, uh, in the years ahead to stop this because even even if Biden wasn't there, this has been going on. For 50 years under under both Republican presidents and and Democrat presidents. Yep. So this is not we're just focused on what's happened in the last two years in the pandemic, and and it's taken the pandemic and what and this you, this tyranny in your face to awaken a nation that this this Marxist movement to destroy this nation has been going on since I was born in the early 60s. So this is nothing new. This is Marxism. And Marxism's goal is to destroy the nation from within by destroying our foundation, our structures, and who we are as a people. And that's where we are. So there's nothing new about this under the sun, except the American people are finally waking up to this is going on, and, and we are at a, we're under threat of extinction as a nation if we do not stop it. Yep. And one of the crossroads, the nexus of that Marxism is really the education system, which incidentally is an issue that is certainly very much controlled at a state level 
So let, let, let's talk a little bit in the remaining minutes about education here. Obviously, I would never send my kids to public school, but I live in Maryland. So I figured, all right, well, you go to a red state, then maybe you could. But the more I discover what's going on, unless you're in a real rural area of a red state, generally speaking, in the cities, even in red states, uh, there's a values problem. And in addition to that, I mean, Alabama typically ranks near the bottom in terms of achievement as well. Are the public schools even fixable? And if so, what's your plan? Absolutely, they're fixable, and they're not. I'll tell you. Let me tell you. In the a dozen years ago, Alabama was running about in the 30s nationally in reading and the high 20s in math. So over a dozen years, which is the length of time that KIV has been either lieutenant governor or governor, six years, uh, we have gone from in the 30s effectively to dead last, even behind Mississippi. And how that can happen is, is almost remarkable, and it's hard to believe, but that's what's happened. Number one, the number one issue is discipline. It's out of control. You have weak leadership. You have weak principles. You cannot, ha- you cannot teach children, or a teacher can't teach when there's no discipline in the class. Mm-hmm. And I've traveled to the state, and they'll say, I can't teach. I have, these, I have 23 kids, two of them out of control, day after day after day. At some point, you have to take those two out of that classroom so a teacher can teach and children that want to learn can learn without the distractions. Number two, the principle is key. Where you have a strong principle, you're going to have an improving school. It's like a head coach. It's like Nick Saban. Uh, where you have a weak principle, you can, it will take, the school will go downhill. We've got to get the best principles in this country in these underperforming schools and you got to give them full authority to do whatever they need to do, and you hold them accountable. And then number three is school choice, and this is something that I'm a huge advocate of, which is the money sort of follows the child. Right now we appropriate money to each school, $5,600 per child, where a parent can take a voucher for that money, and they can snatch their child out of a lousy school. And this is especially good for poor families who can't afford private schools, and take that voucher and then go to any other public school that has an opening, any private school, any charter school, and homeschool. So now you're creating competition in the, in the system, and you're giving families a tool to take, to take control of the situation in their family and give them a shot to get to, to turn this thing around. So those are the three those are the three issues, or that's the, the three prongs of the attack to deal with this. And I can tell you that we can absolutely turn this education system around in not, not a decade, in two to three years, and we can get this state back on the right track. Now, connected to education, especially the way you framed it, the discipline issue, the truancy issue, uh, the crime wave nationwide, in my view, is really being fueled by juvenile crime is out of control. They're committing violent crime at younger and younger ages. In general, uh, we associate violent crime with Chicago, Philadelphia, but the truth be told, even in the mid-sized cities in the South, uh, Birmingham is slated for record homicides this year. Um, So almost every state is being plagued by this. Uh, What exactly would be your plan to deal with that, to reinstate a deterrent Uh, You know, in the 90s, we really clamped down on crime. It went down, 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 down. Then beginning 2015 and accelerating in 2020, it turned the corner the other way. How do you break that trajectory? 
Rudy Giuliani in the 70s. New York City was uh, was one of the most dangerous cities in the world. Giuliani gets elected mayor. He went from being the mo- one of the most dangerous cities in the world to the to the safest place. You go all over New York, all over all over New York City, all over Manhattan, Upper Manhattan and Harlem, and without even the second thought, now it's going back the other way. So this is a this phenomenon is is everywhere. Right now, uh, police officers, you know. I've been under assault uh, from the main me- mainstream media in the nation, and now you can talk to police chiefs in towns. They they have very um, almost no application for police officers. We got to change the culture. We have to increase the pay of police officers throughout Alabama so that they really want to come in and do it. I mean, it's a it's public service. It's in your heart because they're not paid that much anyway. Our state troopers, we have 450 state troopers in Alabama. There should be 900. Uh, we have two lines of the, the two of the greatest human trafficking uh, interstates in the country. One's I-20, which comes, you know, from Dallas to Shreveport to Jackson, to Tuscaloosa to Birmingham to Atlanta. Uh, and I-10, which runs the length of the nation uh, along the southern, the southern line. We've got to get officers. Troopers on the road trained to spot human trafficking, drugs. We have to increase our police force, well trained, and you got to pay them more money to get it. And I think the people of Alabama believe this, and they respect uh, the officers, the police officers, troopers, uh, men and women in blue, and are willing to fund what is needed to do this. And the same in our towns and cities. You know, this has been the problem, black-on-black crime in the, in the inner cities in Montgomery, Birmingham, and, and this. It doesn't, I don't care who they are. I don't care what color their skin is. I don't care if you're black, white, rich, or poor. I will not, as a, as a governor and effectively the chief law enforcement officer in the state, allow our people to be destroyed from within. And I intend to engage aggressively as governor in into every jurisdiction to stop this this rampant run up in crime that we're seeing across not just Alabama, but uh, everywhere. Well, in short, governors matter. They matter a lot more than than senators do, in my my view. So we're going to keep focusing on our meet the governor or gubernatorial candidate series. Uh, Tim, where could our audience our listeners here find out more about your campaign uh daniel first of all i just want to tell you that you're one of the few guys that get the the significance of the executive branch that's where the action is everybody yep. says why you want to be governor because that's where the action is i don't want to be one of a hundred i want to be one-on-one in a state where you can really make a difference um, my, uh, our email or our, our, excuse me, our website is timjamesgovernor.com. Please read about me and we would uh, you know appreciate your prayers and your wishes as we go into this race. And I intend to win this election. We're going to fix the problems here in Alabama quickly. And I promise you this, Daniel, Alabama is going to lead the nation in the years ahead. Other states are going to look at Alabama and they're going to see what is true, what is it's, it's righteousness. It's, it's that that is moral and right in the eyes of God. And other states are going to say, I want my state, I want my children and my grandchildren to grow up in a state like that. You watch Alabama in the years ahead, my friend. 
Well, we certainly will, and you never know. If it does get better, I might move there myself. But, uh, Tim, thank you so much for joining us, and definitely we'll stay in touch. Good luck on the campaign trail. So, again, that was Tim James running against KIV for governor. Uh, it should be noted there are other candidates as well. There is a runoff, so it's not a matter of splitting the vote. The key is to get her below uh, 50%, which one poll had her even at 40. I saw another private poll that had it closer to 50. But the point is, this is actually a sleeper race that might be very, very significant. Uh, let me know your comments, questions, concerns. Daniel Hurwitz at startmail.com. Uh, do you think this candidate is up to the test? Do you think he's what we're looking for? Is he not? Uh, I want you guys to decide. In the past, I brought on candidates that I have endorsed. I still sometimes endorse, but for the most part, I've taken a different tact uh, where I'll just, you know, have them talk and you guys decide. Uh, just because I feel it takes a, a degree of focus and time that I simply do not have to vet all the candidates, understand them, um, and I, I feel like I, I don't have the time. So the other thing is just not to have anyone at all but then you know i want to make sure we don't leave any stones unturned so this is kind of my middle ground here where i do a little bit more of a traditional interview rather than an endorsement interview and you guys get to decide you know what are the flaws you know what's where, where is the guy on track on message where is the guy lapsing into a campaign speech you could see that you're smart enough and we'll continue having candidates on again i'm very much partial towards the governor's races. Uh, sometimes we will even have, you know, maybe other state races, attorney general once in a while, a local position if I feel it's very impactful, like we had a, a candidate running for Dallas County executive, county judge, because uh, I think that's very pivotal. Um, but look, I mean, Alabama sucks. I'm just going to tell you. It has one of the worst Republican legislatures. They did a couple of good things recently because Kay Avi's in trouble, so she knew that. Uh, thank God for primaries. But in general, I mean, I'm just telling you, we can't lose cities like Birmingham and Mobile, right? We can't be relegated to a handful of rural counties and red states, and that's it. Uh, we got to win those places back. We got to make them unhospitable to the left. And, you know, um, the Business Council of Alabama, the BCA, is a, is a big part of that. They're, you know, a big, big problem uh, in in turning these legislators blue, uh, basically pro-life, anti-gun control versions of what you'd find in a blue state. And, and that's the reality. So Kay Ivey is, is a COVID fascist beyond belief. Honestly, I don't even know how much she's still, uh, let's just say, all there. It's hard to know. I mean, she's refusing to debate any of the other candidates. And you don't really see her much publicly. The comments she does make kind of make her sound like Joe Biden. So I don't even know what's going on there. It's truly a travesty that she's even running. But again, uh, to me, the opportunity to knock out an establishment incumbent as governor is gold. You know what? Trivia question. Here's your homework. Find out to me the last time someone successfully downed uh, a Republican from the right in a gubernatorial primary, because I can't think of it offhand. It's that rare, if ever. So if you guys know the answer to that, email me, Daniel Horowitz at startmail.com. Until tomorrow, God bless y'all, and thank you for listening. 